Welcome to session 18 of A Better Brand of Happiness, our study of the, the book of Philippians. And this morning we continue our study of Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Philippians 2, 12 through 18. I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to that passage of Scripture and follow along as I read it. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. The Scripture says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to, or in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a warped and crooked generation." Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should, re- should be glad and rejoice with me. We've already begun studying this section of Scripture, and you may recall from a previous session or two that the big idea that I found for this statement or that I formulated for this passage of Scripture is God wants every believer to become a bright light for Him through obedience and faithfulness, regardless of the circumstances. God wants every believer to become a bright light for Him through obedience and faithfulness, regardless of the circumstances. And I began in, the, in previous sessions by looking at um, the first part of this, verses 12 through 13, where Paul commands the Ephesians, the Philippians, that is, to continue to obey the Lord, to continue their obedience to the Lord. He says in verse 12, as you have always obeyed, work out your salvation. And so this is a continuation of their growth in the faith. It's a continuation of their walk with God by obedience to the Lord. They do so in a manner consistent with their prior obedience. He says, as you have always obeyed. And their obedience means extending the work of salvation into every aspect of their life. When you got saved, God declared all of you to be His. He declared all of you to be righteous and holy in the sight of God because of the merits of Christ applied to you. But now as Christians, we are to work out the implications of that. We are to make what God says about us through Christ to be true, to actually be true in our actual day-to-day living. And so at the end of verse 12, when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he's saying, take what God has said about you and make it true in the way that you live. And this obedience, of course, is God's work. It's not their own self or our own self-generated self-improvement. In verse 13, he says, for it is God who works in you to will and to do according to his good purpose. God's Word commands all believers in Christ to follow Jesus in obedience. And yet, the desire that we have to obey Jesus and the power that we have to obey Jesus is itself a gift of God's grace. We are saved by grace, but we're also sanctified or we are made holy. We are made uh, righteous in the sight of God in our actual being by the grace of God, by His power working in us. And then in verses 14 through 18, Paul began to give a specific way in which we should work out our obedience to Christ. He commands them and us to obey God in one particular way, which is to live without complaint or without 
argument in verses 14 through 18. I'll just read verse 14. He says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. I take this to be a specific application of the general principle of working out your salvation with fear and trembling. And complaining and arguing are good ways to apply this because they are inconsistent with a life that's following Christ in obedience. People who live their lives constantly complaining and arguing with others are living inconsistently with the obedience that Christ commands us to have. Because Jesus has already given us the example of how we should live, which is to be others-oriented. We spent much time in the earlier part of chapter 2 talking about this. How because Jesus oriented himself and lived his life for us, now we as Christians need to emulate that by living for others. Complaining and arguing are just the opposite of that. They are self-oriented behaviors. Someone who complains is um, grumbling, to use the word that this NIV translation uses, is um, is very self-centered. They're upset about something that they are getting or not getting. And so these are self-oriented activities. And complaining and arguing are such common sins that we ought to take time to think about them and how they might be showing up in our lives. And I did that in the previous session. I talked about complaining. And I defined it as a verbal statement about something that's unacceptable to you. When you complain, you speak out loud about something that you find internally unacceptable, all right? And I spent plenty of time talking about complaining. And so let's move forward then with our new material for today and talk about arguing. In verse 14, he says, do everything without grumbling, that's another word for complaining, or arguing. And the word arguing is uh, another form of the application that Paul wants the Philippians to have in their lives. So let's talk about arguing. What is arguing? Arguing, I would say, is the logical use of words in an attempt to change someone in order to get an outcome that we want. It's the logical use of words to change somebody else in order to get an outcome that we want. That's what arguing is. Here's an example. Let's say that tonight, tomorrow is trash day in, in the neighborhood in which I live. And so that means we gather the trash and take it out to the curb tonight. And let's say that I want someone else in my family to take the trash out for a change. All right? And so I could do this. I could simply ask my wife or one of my children, will you take the trash out for me? All right? This is not arguing. It's a request. And if he or she says, yes, I'll take it out for you, then no argument is needed. What I want has been accomplished. But as you know, in most instances of life, Sometimes arguing will follow a request like this. And so if he or she says, no, I won't take out the trash tonight, then I could make an argument. I could use logic and words to try to change them so that I get the outcome that I want. My argument is an attempt to give them logical reasons why they should do what I want them to do. And there are different ways that I could make my argument about the trash. One argument I could make is this. I can't do it because I have a broken leg. And I can't use my crutches and push the cart out to the curb at the same time. Now, if I actually had a broken leg, that could be a very persuasive argument. But I don't, at least not yet. So um, at this moment, I could not truthfully use that argument to persuade them because all they'll do is look at me and say, no, you don't have a broken leg. What are you talking about? Okay, so that argument won't work. 
I could try a different argument and I could say this. I've done it every Sunday for the past four years since we moved into this house. And so now it's your turn, right? Well, that might be persuasive because of the long history I have of taking out the garbage, but that doesn't logically follow that it's actually their turn just because I've always done it in the past. But it is one reason that might work. It's one way in which someone might be logically persuaded to do what I want and take out the trash. But let's say that the person I'm arguing with, someone in my family, responds to my argument with a counter-argument. They give me a good reason why they can't do it. I have homework to finish before school tomorrow or whatever. Now we have an argument, right? Each of us wants something different. We all want the same outcome. We want the trash to go out. But neither one of us wants to do it. And both of us think the other person should do it. And so as we throw logical um, arguments back and forth to each other, we are engaged in what is called arguing in a larger sense. This is what's going on and, and being talked about in this passage of Scripture. Now, there are good reasons to make an argument. There are times when arguing with someone is the right thing to do. If I'm about to jump off a tall building because I think I have the ability to fly, all right, I'm not doing it in a suicidal attempt to kill myself, but instead I think that I can fly, all right? And you come along, and I hope you would, and you argue with me. You give me logical reasons why I should not do what I want to do. This is a good type of argument. Why? Because it's calibrated for my good, all right? It's actually an act of love. It's actually an act of kindness for you to try to argue me out of doing something stupid, and detrimental, and harmful, and delusional. And so sometimes arguing is good. We can sometimes use words to lead someone logically to a good place, a wiser or better decision. And so sometimes arguing is helpful, it's good, but most often, as you know, arguing is actually a sinful response to sinful desires. We try to talk some, someone into doing something that's unwise or even sinful for them to do. Because we have our own selfish reasons. Or often, we try to talk our way out of doing something that we really should do. If someone in the church asks you to serve in a certain capacity, let's say they don't even ask you to teach on a regular basis in one of the children's Calvary classes. They just say, will you substitute for me next Sunday? That's it, just next Sunday, all right? And then they give an argument. They say, because I'm going to be out of town, so somebody's going to need to teach the class. And because it'll be good for you, because it'll give you an opportunity to serve the Lord in a way you haven't tried serving the Lord before, maybe. And it'll be good for the kids, because it'll be a fresh voice, and you have a new perspective, maybe. And so they give you a bunch of reasons why you should do this. But you don't want to do it. Not because you can't, but just because you just don't like it. You just don't want to serve in that way. Maybe you have a fear of public speaking, which many people do. Maybe you don't like children. Maybe you don't want to study the Bible. I don't know. But you have some reason, some sinful reason for not wanting to do it. When the argument ensues, okay, there is um, a verbal uh, sparring going on. Logic is being thrown back and forth, and not in a way that is good and godly in, in the Lord's sight, not in a way that actually benefits and helps other believers or the church itself. 
No, it's about selfishness. It's about not doing what you could do and should do if you wanted to please the Lord. And this is what most arguing is. It's, it's just a selfish attempt to evade responsibility or to do something or to avoid doing something that you don't want to do. Now, this happens in the local church as well. It happens in everyday life, of course. People argue with their spouses. They argue with their boss. They argue with their children. They argue with their neighbors. And people in the church argue as well. People in the church can argue over things such as so, so petty as where they're going to sit in, during the Sunday morning service. I have encountered Christians, not in this church that I can recall, and not in a long time, but in previous ministries, I've encountered Christians, people who claim to be Christians, who argue about seats. This is my seat, they say, because I always sit there, all right? And so that means you don't belong there. It's a petty thing to argue about, but it happens. Sometimes people in the church argue about decisions that the leadership makes. Let me give you an example of that. Here at Calvary, we rent some of our space to a daycare center. It's not affiliated with our church. It's not a ministry of our church. They are a tenant, in a sense, of our building. And at times, people have argued that we shouldn't be renting space to them, and they make various um, logical reasons why we shouldn't. They say, um, because they're here and they want to protect the kids, the building is kind of locked down, and so therefore it's not available for people in the church to use it, okay? And that's a fair argument. Other people have tried to argue biblically and say, well, we're, you know, it's not, a, um, it's not a Christian daycare, it's a secular daycare in a sense, and so they say we're unequally yoked with unbelievers. And so they try to make a Christian argument, a spiritual argument, a biblical argument. Okay, that's okay. Okay, we can lay out reasons why we think something should be done. But the elders of our church are the ones who have the decision-making authority in the body. And these are things we've talked about. They were discussed before the decision was made to rent space to the daycare. They've been talked about throughout the time that uh, the daycare has rented space from us. We've talked about the pros and cons and when they've needed more space or we've needed to change things about our ministry in order to accommodate them. We've talked about the implications of that. And ultimately, God has given the authority for how the churches run to the elders, And so if the elders decide something, unless there is some clear violation of Scripture, and the thing about not being unequally yoked, that's an application of Scripture, one that we don't think is correct. And so unless there's some clear violation of Scripture, then in my understanding, the body of Christ should stop arguing and follow its leadership. And yet you know and I know that churches don't always do that. Churches often have a hard time. People in the congregation often have a hard time following the decisions of the leaders that God has given. When Paul says here in Philippians 2.14, do everything without grumbling or arguing, he is telling us, be careful how you use words in the body of Christ. Are you using words to correct people biblically, to build up the body of Christ, to strengthen them in their walk with God? Or are you making an argument that is self-serving and self-seeking? And we as Christians should take this to heart. We should think about the way that we talk to other people, the things that we ask them to do, the reasons why we want them to do it. Are the things that we ask others, ask of others done for the overall good and health of the body of Christ? 
Are they done for the good of the person listening? Or are they done to try to accomplish my own will, to do something that I want to do or to not do something that I've been asked to do that I don't want to do? This is where sinful arguing comes from. And Paul says part of working out our salvation with fear and trembling is to do what is asked of us by the body of Christ, by the leadership of the body or by other members of the body of Christ, to do what they ask us to do without complaining about it and saying, I don't deserve to be treated like this or I'm worthy of better treatment or a better place of ministry without complaining or arguing. That is, arguing back and saying, I shouldn't be the one to do this. Paul says, as Christians, we should learn to live this way. We should live out the implications of our faith by doing what needs to be done without complaining and without arguing, because complaining and arguing are selfish responses. And Jesus himself laid down his selfishness. He acted in selflessness for our good. And so we should also follow his example and ask and act for the good of others, inside and outside the body of Christ. Now, when we live like this, when we live without complaining and arguing in our Christian life, there's a result that occurs. And we see that result in verses 15 and 16. Look again, Philippians 2.15 says, so that, and so the words so that indicate result. When we live without complaining and argument, what happens? Here's the result, verse 15. So that you may become blameless and pure. The result of us living without complaining and arguing is that we become Again, who Christ, who we are in Christ, who Christ has declared us to be. God has declared us to be blameless and pure. As we learn to live without complaining and arguing, we actually become what, what God has said that we are in Christ. We become blameless and pure in this world. We become the people that God saved us to be. And this causes us to stand out from the world around us. That's what the rest of verse 15 is getting at. So that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. The world around us runs on selfishness. People complain and argue because they have self-centered attention and self-centered goals and self-directed actions. And when other people who have self-centered goals and self-centered actions encounter people who have self-centered goals and self-centered actions, what happens? There are collisions that result. And those, that, that results in complaining when someone uses their power in a way that you don't like, and so you complain about it, or arguing when you try to change the result. The world around us runs on complaining and arguing because people are self-centered and self-directed. And so if we learn to live not by complaining and arguing, but by serving one another, we look different than what the rest of the world around us looks like. And Paul says, when we do this, it's going to get noticed. People are going to see it. It's going to, he says that it's going to make us blameless in this world. And the word blameless means that unbelievers cannot accuse us of living selfishly. We say that as Christians, we are to live for others. That's part of our um, identity as Christians, that just as Jesus laid down his life for us, We should love one another and put others ahead of ourselves, even as Jesus did. And yet, if we complain about things and if we argue our way, well, we're worthy of blame then. People can blame us and say, you're living hypocritically. But if we live without complaining and argument, that's what he means by being blameless. 
in the society. It also makes us pure, he says in verse 15, so that you may become blameless and pure. And the idea here of making us pure is the sense that unbelievers cannot accuse us of having a hypocritical heart. An impure person, in a sense, is, is, is hypocritical. The word pure has um, the idea of without guile, without deception. And when we complain and argue about things, we are using guile and deception. We are saying, on one hand, I belong to Jesus and I do his will. But in our hearts, we're operating out of self-motivation and self-will. And so in verse 15, Paul is saying, as we live this way, as we learn how to interact with others in a way that serves others and in a way that is not selfish and complaining and arguing, then we show ourselves or we develop that blamelessness and purity that God wants us to have in our lives. And it becomes known. Verse 15 goes on and says, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Again, this is... um, showing the distinction between us and the rest of the world, which does live selfishly and does have impure motives. These these qualities of blamelessness and purity are qualities that only God's children have. That's what he's saying, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God. Because we we are God's children, then, we can live this way without fault in a sinful generation. And that causes us, at the end of verse 15 to shine brightly in this world. Verse 15 goes on and says, without fault in a warped and crooked generation, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Have you ever gone out at night on a really clear night with no clouds and gone away from the lights of the city and the neighborhood of yours and just looked up at the sky and just been amazed at the, at, at the intensity of the light that shines from those stars? Space is a dark place. And those lights stand out. We can see them from however many millions of miles away they are. We can see the light that they cast because they are bright in a dark place. And the Bible says as people live in this world and they encounter all kinds of selfish arguing and complaining and then they come across a Christian who is self not self-centered, but is actually others-oriented, who gives of himself or herself to others, who doesn't argue or complain, but instead is willing to accept things because we know that there's a sovereign God who allows things to happen the way that they happen. And so we are submitted to the will of God and we are committed to the others, to the good of others. Then all of a sudden, like the, the vast darkness of space, people encounter someone who shines as a bright light. And they say there's something different about this person. I've never encountered someone who is truly selfless like this. And the light, that, the light of Christ, that is, shines through us because of the way that we choose to live. And then verse 16 goes on and says, As you hold firmly to the word of life. And that is that, again, in the world that we live in, not only do we show um, our faith by Uh, living in a selfless way, but we also do it by holding fast to the truths of God's word. That is against the pressure of the world around us to renounce our faith in Christ or to downplay our faith in Christ. We hold fast to it. So see, we don't just live in this world in a way that says, well, I want the light of Christ to shine in people's hearts, but I never actually talk about Jesus. I just try to live like Jesus and do good works and 
let my light shine in this world and hope that people understand. No, it's both. We live like Jesus and we hold firmly to the word of life. We hold publicly our commitment to Jesus Christ and we don't back down on who we are in Jesus and what being a follower of Jesus means. We hold firmly to the word of life. And then Paul says, then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. Paul is saying, I'm looking at the fruit of your life, Philippians. And as you purge your life of the selfishness that is so common in our world and learn to become selfless people who hold firmly to God's truth, then I see that the gospel seed that I planted in you truly is taking root. That it wasn't just an outward profession of faith without an inward reality, but that you actually have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul says in uh, verse 16, when he talks about the day of Christ, he's talking about the day in which we stand before Jesus and give an account of our lives. Paul is saying, I will have genuine, visible fruit of my work for Jesus Christ that I can point to you and say, look at how these people have changed. Look how brightly their testimonies shined in this world because they lived unselfishly and they held firmly to God's word. And then verse 17 says, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. In this, in, these, uh, last, in this last verse, or these last two verses, verses 17 through 18 of our paragraph, Paul returns to his own situation. And you remember that Paul was in prison in Rome. And he had an expectation that he would be released. And in fact, if we know church history correct, he actually was released from this particular imprisonment. But Paul is willing to concede that it might not be the will of God for him to be released. He understands that he might be in prison for a long time, and then when he finally does go to trial, he might be executed. And so his life might be over, and he's thinking about the work that he's done for Jesus. He's thinking about the gospel seeds that he has planted and the churches that formed out of those gospel seeds, and how God is continuing to transform these people in Philippi and other places, and how the unselfish life of Christ is growing in their lives and showing in their lives around the world. And he says, even if this is the end for me, even if I never go out and plant another church or even tell another person outside of this prison about Jesus Christ, he says, I'm content. Because I can see God's working in your life. And I know that when I stand before God, there will be genuine fruit from my work for God. That there will be rewards for Paul when he stands before Christ. Because the work that he did was not... in in vain, that is, empty or fruitless. In verse 17, when he talks about being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, he's referring to an Old Testament analogy where an offering, uh, a lamb or some kind of uh, um, animal was offered on the altar and then a drink offering was poured out upon that offer. He views the work of the of these believers and of all believers as like a living sacrifice to use the language that he used in romans chapter 12 that as we live in this world for god as we sacrifice our own interests for the good of others and ultimately for the good of jesus christ we're like living sacrifices we've laid our lives on the altar and the way that we live and the choices that we make are like um, an altar burning in praise and worship to god and paul says if i'm killed 
It's like I'm like being poured on top of you, in a sense. He's saying, my life is being a fragrant offering to God as well, through your faith. And he says, if this happens, if, if I am killed and my life ends, then I view the end of my life as just another part of my offering to God. It supplements the offering that your living sacrifice is making for God. And so he says at the end, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. And so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Death is a terrible thing. It's not the way God created human beings to exist. Death was not part of God's original intention for us. It's the consequence of sin. And therefore, this is why we find death so traumatic. Okay, Because it cuts short God's intention. God intended us and created us to live for eternity. It's only when we sinned that death became a sentence that was passed on us by God. And so even we Christians have a certain amount of dread about death. We miss the people who die. Even if we know they're with the Lord, we grieve their, the loss of their fellowship and their person with us. And even when we think about our own death, the loss of fellowship of people on this earth and the end of the only reality we've ever known are difficult things for us to process. And yet Paul says, even if I die here in this prison as a martyr for Jesus Christ, he says, I'm not sad about this. I don't worry and wish that I had more time to serve Jesus. He said, if this is the end for me, I know that I've done everything that I can for God and his work. And so he says, that, he says I, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, and so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul's saying, don't pity me here in prison. Don't worry about me. Be glad because I belong to Jesus Christ and everything I've done has been for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. And if this is the end, that's the will of God for me. And so there's no reason for me to be worried or concerned. There's no reason for me to complain about my circumstances or to argue that this isn't fair, argue with God that it's not fair, for instance. Instead, he says, I take joy in all of this because I'm a servant operating under the will of God, mirroring the servant nature of Jesus Christ who gave himself for me. So Paul is saying that regardless, that's where the last part of my big idea here, regardless of the circumstances comes in, that no matter what happens in your life, what God wants for you and me as believers is for us to become a bright light for him in this world. And we do that through obedience Obedience, specifically in this passage, of not complaining and not arguing, but giving ourselves in service for others. And we do it through faithfulness. This is the holding fast the word of life. We remain faithful to Christ and to his teaching. We don't compromise in areas of truth. The Bible says when we live this way, our light will shine brightly in a dark world. People will see the truth, that there is transformation in Jesus Christ. And in that transformation, there is a better brand of happiness. The happiness that comes from true joy. Where even if I serve others and don't get recognition for it, that's something that people complain about. I did this for you and you weren't thankful for it. You didn't give me any praise for it. 
Even if that happens, I can say, it's well with my soul. I can live in joy because I'm not doing it for the praise of men. I'm doing it for the glory of God. And so as Paul has been working his way through the book of Philippians, and as he's been teaching these various truths about the gospel in chapter 1 primarily, and then how we as Christians should mirror and actually reflect the, the, um, the unselfishness of Christ. He is saying, if you do these things, you will experience true joy. The joy of living a life that pleases God, no matter what the circumstances of your life are. Is this your reality as a Christian? You know, the opposite of complaining is really gratitude. It's gratitude for what God has given you. It's not focusing in a negative way on what God hasn't given you or others haven't given you. Are you grateful for the life that you have? That even if you don't have as much as other people have or you have difficult problems that other people don't seem to have, yet you've been redeemed by the grace of Jesus Christ, you've been given the Spirit of God who will help you to live a God-glorifying life despite the circumstances, this is a better brand of happiness. And we as believers should think about this as we grow in our faith. We should cultivate the attitude of being a bright light for the Lord in this world by obedience to Him and by faithfulness to His Word, even if the circumstances of life are difficult. This is a better brand of happiness. To become a bright light for God through obedience and faithfulness, regardless of the circumstances. This is what God wants. And so let's take these truths and put them into practice in our lives.